This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. To keep you in suspense, I had a be everyday crime. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Hello again, this is Gary Clinton, and you're listening to The Night Transmissions. You know, i got to tell you, I do keep wondering who, if anyone's listening. I don't want to whine, but, you know, we don't have any sort of rating system here. I've never even got one stinking letter from anybody. I'll tell you what, I'm going to have a Howard Beale moment here. I'm going to go over and I'm going to open up the back door to the alley. While I do this, actually let's do it this way. I want you all to go to the window, fling it open, and I want you to lean out and I want you to yell at the top of your voices, I'm listening, Gary. I think you can do that? Okay. Give me a second here. I'm going to go over and I'm going to open up the door. I'm going to wide open the door wide. Now hang on here. Okay, now I open wide the door. Stupid door! Ah, there, there. Damn, that's a lot of crickets. For our first venture tonight, we have an episode of Creeps by Night, which originally broadcast on May the 2nd of 1944. The title of the episode is The Final Reckoning. They bring you Creeps by Night. Tonight is revenge. We have chosen for you a story that 
plumbs the very depths of one of man's primary emotions. The eternal seeking of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the story of a man who waited 20 long and heartbreaking years before the opportunity came to seek vengeance. But when it did, he stalked his prey with the cold and horrible stealth of a black panther. Creep by Night presents Boris Karloff as George Miller in The Final Reckoning. Our scene is the warden's office, the state penitentiary. A middle-aged man, his shoulders hunched and his hair prematurely gray, stands before the warden's desk, clothed in an ill-fitting prison-made suit. His face is yellowed with the pallor of long confinement, but his eyes, set deeply in dark-shadowed hollows, are bright and clear. Looking at him, the warden speaks. Well, I wish you'd reconsider, George. I don't like to see you walk out of here in your condition. I'll be all right, Gordon. I'll be a fool. You've just gotten over a bad case of pneumonia. Why not spend an extra week or so in the hospital? Let Doc Reed put you back on your feet. My time is up at noon today, isn't it? Yes, but we'd glad to. That's when I'm leaving. The moment that noon whistle blows. You're in no shape to travel. Look at you. You're still sick, man. Deathly sick. I've been sick for almost 20 years, Warden, ever since those iron gates out there closed behind me. I've waited a lifetime for the cure, planned for it. Now I'm going to get it. You're just being stubborn, George. I don't understand it. You've been a model prisoner in every way. In the entire history of the penitentiary, only three men have had life sentences commuted, and you're one of them. And yet, in a matter that concerns your well-being, you act like an obstinate fool. Why? Because I've got something to do. Something very important. <laughs> What's more important than your health? The thing I've got to do. Wait a minute. Are you going to do something that uh, might land you back in here? Is that it? Don't worry, Warden. You know, come to think of it, George... There's something I've always wanted to ask you. Something personal. Go ahead. In all the years you've been here, why have you refused to see visitors or mail? Why did you completely cut yourself off from the outside world? Well, it it all boils down to this. A man ages a lot in 20 years. His voice changes and his way of talking. His features change. He becomes an entirely different person. Especially in a place like this. Just knowing that you're hemmed in by four walls does something to you. Something... Well, that's the answer. It's no answer at all. Yes, it is. I didn't want anyone to see me age, to see the changes that were coming over me. The way it is now, the George Miller who's walking out of here at 44 is nothing like the George Miller who was brought in at 25. They're two different people. No one outside this prison will ever recognize me. 
that what you want? That's exactly what I want. Why? You've got nothing to be ashamed of. You've paid your debt to society. There's another debt I have to pay to myself. It's been owing for a long time. Uh, I don't like the way you're talking, George. What's behind all this? Twenty years, Warden. The best part of my life. A minute ago, you asked me to look at myself. I don't have to look. I can feel it down inside. I'm an old man. An old man at 44. Self-pity is a bad thing, George. I'm not pitying myself. I'm thinking about what brought me here. You've got the record right there in front of you. I said I was innocent then, and it still holds. I'm innocent now. That's a closed book. Why not let it stay closed? Because there's an unfinished chapter still to be written. Remember, you haven't served your full term. You'll be on probation for five years. I'll remember. I've had a long time to think it over. Hmm. Incidentally, while we're at it, there's one more thing that's been puzzling me. You'd better hurry. It's almost noon. Six months ago, when it seemed pretty certain that your commutation was coming through, you made a strange request. You asked to be relieved of the job of running the prison library. A job you'd held as far back as I can remember. And you asked me to assign you uh, as an apprentice to the prison barber. I granted that request, but I, I wondered about it at the time. Would you care to tell me why you suddenly decided to become a barber? I thought it might be a good idea to learn a trade. That's not true, George. The noon whistle. That means I'm a free man, doesn't it? Yes. Good night, Orton. Take care of yourself. You haven't answered my question, George. You mean, why did I suddenly decide to become a barber? Yes. I told you. I wanted to learn a trade. And I told you that's not the truth. You're right, Warden. It isn't. I hear George Miller's house. No kidding. Yeah, got his sentence commuted. Did they know? If he does, he better start moving. Charlie, this is Duke. I just got you call. George Miller's out. Wonder what Ace will do. You want to hear something, honey? George Miller's on. Boy, would I like to see Ace when he gets on those. George Miller's out. George Miller's out. George Miller's out. George Miller's out. Well, what's your life? It's true, Ace. They commuted his sentence. He got out yesterday. Uh, what did I tell you? I spend a hundred grand a year on smart lawyers. And where do I get my information? From a hothead. A barber. But Ace. Oh, sure, sure. I'm out of my mind. I don't know what I'm talking about. George Miller's dead. He died in prison ten years ago. Eh? Well, that's what they told us. Who told you? Our sources of information. Your sources of information. <laughs> Don't make me laugh. Now, look at And I'll get out before I lose my temper. If you don't even... All right, said. His sources of information. Sarah, get me a drink. Oh, Ace, honey, don't get yourself all upset. Shut up. Hey, Shut up and stay out of this. None of your business. Is that a nice way to talk? Who is this, George Miller? I said it's none of your business. 
What's that? Just the doorbell. I'll answer it. Wait a minute. Now what? Don't open that door. You'll find out who it is. Of all the... You heard me. Find out who it is first. Okay. Who is it? Who is it? No answering. Damn. Miller, trying to trick me. Ace, why is the sheet? Take it Keep your voice down. Now listen to me. In case anything happens, he threatened me. I had to protect myself. Do you understand? Yes, but... Yes, what are you doing with that gun? Never mind. You just follow orders. All right. Open the door. Slowly. Yes, how? Open it, I said. Nobody here. What's that on the floor? No! What is it? Rat! A damn rat! <laughs> Um, dead rat. 
When we found outside the apartment door, and the one that came by parcel post in that little wooden cock. What do they mean? What do you think they mean? I don't know. It's got something to do with George Miller. Yeah, yeah well, you get right. Miller's trying to get me jittery. He knows I've got a bad heart. Planning these things to tell me he thinks I'm a rat. I did wonder if he has anything to do with it. He's hot. Now, don't worry. I'm safe up here. The boys will get Miller. Yeah? Walter, sir, with your brandy. Okay, okay, come in. Uh, just just put the tray down on the table. Yes, sir. Will that be all, sir? I guess so. What about our luggage, eh? Oh, yes. Did my man bring the bags up? Yes, sir. They're in the hallway, sir. Well, bring them in, will you? Yes, sir. So no water, eh? I'll take it straight. Where shall I put the bags, sir? Oh, just set them down any place. Yes, sir. Will that be all, sir? Yeah. And uh, don't forget to lock up. I won't, sir. Good night. 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 Oh, that yes and no, sir, routine is going to drive me nuts. It talks like one of those fancy movie butlers. Looks like a zombie. <laughs> it's a thing. How about you? No, I better get the bags unpacked first. Oh, stuff will be wrinkled. Well, here's how. I needed that drink. <sighs> Oh, maybe I can relax. Sit down and take it easy, honey. You know, not going to be so bad staying up here for a week or two. Hey, how do you open this bag, Ace? Which one? Yours. Black leather. Oh, there's a little gadget on the lock. Just press it and it snaps open. You got it? Uh-huh. And we'll get a good rest. What's the matter? Look! What? Another dead You double-dealing skunk, or I'll set your skull. Please believe me, I, I didn't do it. I'm sorry. Talk, I said. Spell it. I, I ain't got nothing to spell. Well, listen, Chuck. No. I know your kind. No. I know them from way back. You'd sell your mother for cash on the line. George Miller got to you. No. He paid you to slip that dead rat into my suitcase. No. No. I don't trust you either. I don't trust anybody. They're all a bunch of blood-sucking double-crossers. You heard me. You'd like to see me dead, wouldn't you? Get out of your mind. Now, get out, both of you. No. Get out, I said. Get out of the house. Stay out. Yeah, who is it? It's Walter, sir, with your brandy. Oh, bring it in. This is the last bottle, sir. Yeah, put it down. Yes, sir. Will that be all, sir? Yeah, yeah, that's all. I thought perhaps you'd like something to eat, sir. It's been three days since you've taken any solid food. Yeah. Three days. I brought an omelette and some toast. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Walter. Quite all right, sir. Hey, wait a minute. Yes, sir? You were pretty nice to me, Walla. Thank you, sir. Yeah, pretty nice. And I'm the kind of a guy who don't forget. I don't forget if a guy's nice to me. And I don't forget if he stabs me in the back. Neither do I, sir. Come in. I'm sorry to disturb you, sir. Ah, it's all right, it's all right. Come on in and close the door. Yes, sir. What do you got there, Walla? 
Well, I thought now that you're feeling a little better, sir, that perhaps you'd like to be shaved. Been almost a week, you know. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me you're a barber, too. I have been a barber, sir. Well, I could use a shave, I guess, all right. If I may say so, sir, I think you'll find it very refreshing. Okay, go ahead. Where do you want? The chair you're sitting in will be all right, sir. I'll get some warm water in the bathroom. You know what? I've been thinking. When I go back into town, I'm going to take you with... Yeah, I could use a man like you. That's very kind of you, sir. I like people like you around me. People who don't ask questions of getting your hair. Take care of what you're supposed to, and that's the end of it. I try to keep my place, sir. <laughs> You've got the right idea. Yeah, well, I do. Lean back. In just a moment, sir. I'll have to fasten the strop to the back of the chair. I want the razor good and sharp. <laughs> You'll need it sharp for this bit. Yes, sir. You must have been wondering about me these last few days, Warren. No, sir. Not particularly. You mean you wouldn't like to know why I've been hiding out here in the mountains? Sure, you must have a good reason, sir. Yeah, you can say that again. Someone's gunning for me. Gunning for you? Uh-huh. Somebody trying to get me. Guy named Miller. George Miller. The name sounds familiar. He got a life sentence for murder about 20 years ago. Yeah, there's quite a story out of the papers. He killed a girl. Did he? That's what the jury thought. He gave him first degree with a recommendation for mercy. That saved him from the chair. What did you think? Well, I think about what? Lean back, sir. I'm almost ready for you. Hey, isn't that razor sharp enough yet? Not quite. I haven't used it in some time. What did you think about George Miller's conviction, sir? Yeah, what's the difference to what I thought? The jury cooked his goose. Did they? Yeah. Oh, come on, come on. What are you going to shave me get to it? I'm ready now. Lean back, sir. I'll soap you up. Okay. I assume this... This George Miller is out of prison now. Yeah. Got a commutation. Hey, you sure you don't need a lawnmower to get this beard off? I can do very well with a razor, sir. You know, I'm going to feel like a new man when you get through. Yes, a completely new man. Ah, you're a funny guy, Waller. You talk like a college professor. I've had a lot of time to read and study in the past 20 years. A lot of time. Yeah? That's enough soap. Now, just relax, sir. Does the razor pull? Nope. It was all right. That's fine. Nothing like a good, sharp razor. Yeah. Now don't move. It's right.
rather difficult shaving you in this chair. If you move, I may cut your throat. That's not funny. It wasn't meant to be funny, Ace. What did you say? Sit back, Ace. One slip and you're finished. You're a dead rat. George Miller. That's right. It's been a long time, hasn't it, Ace? George, George, you wouldn't tell me in cold blood, would you? This isn't cold blood, Ace. This is hot blood, heated for 20 years. That's how long I've waited. Feel how sharp the razor is. No, no, George. Be careful. Doesn't take much to slit a throat from ear to ear. You know that. George, George, I'll give you anything you want. Name your price. You couldn't meet it. Only one thing can pay for those George, 20 years. George, I've got a bad heart. You know. Yes, so I've heard. All I'm asking for is a break. Did you give me a break when you framed me and set me up for life? I figured you'd beat the rap. I never thought they'd convict you. Then you admit framing me. Yeah, yeah, but I never figured you admitted you killed the Maguire girl because she knew too much. Because you wanted her out of the way. Yeah, yeah, but that's nothing. It's more than enough. Now feel the razor on your throat. Cutting. No, George. No. Cutting deeper. Down. Deeper. You said you'd be a new man when this was over. But you're wrong, Ace. You're only a dead rat. Who's it? It's there, Ace. I've come back. Come in, Miss Carroll. Oh, hello, Walter. Is Mr. Dinelli... Oh, there he is. Shame. Ace, darling... I couldn't stand being away from you. I had to come back. I, c- I couldn't... What? What was it? you asleep or something? I'm afraid not, Miss Carroll. Why is he slumped in the chair? Why is I staring that way? Why does he move? He can't move. He's dead. My name isn't Walter, Miss Carroll. My name is George Miller. George Miller? George Miller? Yes. Then you... You killed him? No, Miss Carroll, I did not kill him. You don't see any blood, do you? But he's dead. He said he was dead. I'm afraid I played rather a gruesome joke on him. You see, I was shaving him with a very sharp razor. After I told him who I was, I held the back of the blade, the dull side, against his throat. As you know, he he had a bad heart. Unfortunately, it it couldn't stand the strain. You murdered him? You got the chair for this? You're wrong, Miss Carroll, quite wrong. Ace Stanelli died of a heart attack. That's what a medical autopsy will show. You caused it. You brought it on. That would be very difficult to prove. I figured this out so carefully, Miss Carroll. I paid with 20 years of my life for a murder I did not commit. And now there's nothing the law can do to me. Or one that I did commit.
has just brought you Boris Karloff in the final reckoning. Be with us again next Tuesday night at the same time over most of these stations when Mr. Karloff will present another weird mystery of the mind, The Hunt. by Dave Drummond. Original music is composed and conducted by Al Sachs. The entire production is under the supervision of Robert Maxwell. The next show is an episode of Suspense that was first aired on November 17th of 1942 and takes place in Britain against the backdrop of World War II. Suspense. For Suspense, tonight we present Menace in Wax by John Dixon Carr. During the French Revolution of 1793, a Swiss girl copied in wax the severed heads of those who had just been guillotined. She married a Frenchman named Toussaint and came to London, and she founded Madame Toussaint's Waxworks. There it is, still in Marylebone Road, near Baker Street Station. Not the original building. That was destroyed by fire. But it remained untouched on a darker shadow than revolution came to England. They plastered high explosives all along that road and hit the cinema next door. We are going to London under the bomber's moon. Late one night in March of 1941, a young man hurried up to the great glass doors of Madame Dussault's. Hey, open up there. Isn't there a night watchman around this place? Governor, and I'm in. Now, what do you want at this hour of the night? My name is Rogers. I'm from the Daily Record. Oh. If you let me get inside, I'll show you my press card. Didn't you get any orders about me? Well, maybe I have at that. Oh, you're the bloke who wants to see the Chamber of Horrors. That's right. <laughs> All right, you may as well come in. My paper got a tip. There's something funny going on around here. Something funny going on here? Yeah, that's a good one. The raid's not very heavy tonight, is it? No, they're going over. You ain't heard where, Governor. We got a teletype flash. There was a Midlands. Lord Lummy, and I've got a sister in Birmingham. Oh, why can't she come and stop in a nice, safe place like London? There's the Regent's Park guns opening up again. My teeth rattle and shakes the hats off the dummies' heads. You know, this chamber of ours is getting to be popular tonight. You mean there's been somebody here before me? Yes. A woman? That's right, Governor. About five feet, two inches tall, very pretty. If you like them, brunette and big-eyed and a phony French accent. No, Governor, no. This was only an old lady that lost her handbag. Oh, thank the Lord for that anyway. Now then, what is going on around here? Well, I don't know, Governor. You'll have to ask Pearson about that. Who's Pearson? Oh, he's the bloke that's the watchman down there. He's old and he imagined things. He phoned your piper. 
Have you got an electric torch? Yes. Then go straight on through the marble hall and down the stairs on your left. And don't speak to the policeman, because he's wax. <laughs> yes, that's the way, Governor. That's the way to the Chamber of Horrors. Thank you. Pearson. Hello, Pearson. Pearson. Uh, yes, sir. Huh? You're looking for me. Oh, uh... I didn't see you there. I must have thought you were one of these wax dummies. Uh, ugly dim light, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Rogers is my name. I'm from the Daily Record. Oh, yes. I'm glad you came over. I fold your paper myself. Maybe I'm just imagining things, but... Oh, I don't blame you. This place would make anybody nervous, especially during an air raid. Uh, well, sir, it's all right as long as you don't get to imagine they're watching you. Oh, and do you? Oh, yes. Sometimes. That's the gambling group in the center there. Uh-huh. What's that thing over there? That's the famous guillotine. Oh, wait a minute, old boy. You're not trying to tell me that's the original guillotine. No, uh, that was burnt in the fire. Madame Toussaint bought it from Sanson, the executioner. Let me tell you something, Mr. Rogers. What? Years ago... If this is straight, a young French woman came in here. There was nobody else in the place. She thought it would be great fun to say she'd put her neck in the same guillotine as Marie Antoinette. So she climbed up on that platform. She snapped the little wooden collar down round her neck, shutting herself in. All of a sudden, she realized she didn't know which spring controlled the collar and which spring controlled the knife. Oh, good Lord, she didn't... No. But they say she went crazy. They say she screamed and screamed. What's that? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you, but... Sweet mama, I'm so scared myself, I cannot help it. Susie. Oh, no, 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 not Susie. Susie, you make it so it rhymes with floozy. That is not not. Why, you little devil. I ought to turn you across my knee. What are you doing here? And will you forget that French accent? You're driving me crazy. Uh, you know this young lady, sir. Do I? She works for my paper. She's haunting me. Oh, Bert, that's not nice. I like the way I talk. I only try to give you ideas. That's just what I mean. Now, take your arms from around my neck. Uh, she's French, sir. Her mother came from New York, like I did. She's got some funny ideas, accents, and disguises. So, I dress up as an old lady, and I come along, too. That is clever, no? Definitely no. But I go into what I think is the lady's room, and there is Jack the Ripper. I'm so scared, I almost kick the ghost. Whatever else you do, miss, for the love of heaven, put out that cigarette. It is not permitted? It is what they are most afraid of in this place. Fire. If you vouch for this young lady, Mr. Rogers... I don't vouch for anybody. But go on now. What's all the mystery here at Madame Tussaud's? You see the group over there? It's called the Gamblers. That three men and a woman in 18th century costumes sitting around a table playing cards? Yes. And about once a week, when the lights are out... Yes? Those dummies do play cards. Is this a publicity trick of some kind? Oh, no, sir. 
And what's the game? I'm not crazy. I know they don't actually do it, sir. What I want to know is who changes the cards round in their hands and why? Well, could anybody? Anybody from the outside, I mean, get in to change the cards? Oh, yes. There's a back door. But why would anyone want to break in here just to change those cards around? Monsieur Bert, écoutez. Listen, I have made a discovery. Listen, if you're going to talk, speak English. Or better yet, just keep still. But I have made a discovery. This card game... What about it? It is crooked. Here is a man which has two deuces of hearts in the same hand. Listen, Susie, I don't give a... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's have a look at those cards. I give you ideas, yes? Susie, for once you're right. And look here. Two of these players have all the clubs and hearts. The other two have all the diamonds and spades. Susie, how many letters in the alphabet? Twenty-six, no? And twice twenty-six is... Twenty-two. The number of cards in a pack. Give me a pencil, Susie, quick. The War Office, Whitehall. MI-5, Headquarters of Military Intelligence. There next morning in the map room, used as an office by Colonel Warrender... Mr. Rogers, I'm a busy man. I appreciate that, Colonel Warrender. Anyhow, sit down. Thank you, sir. Now, what's all this? These cards you claim form a code, is that it? Yes, sir. Now, look, sir. Let each letter of the alphabet represent a card in clubs and hearts. That's 26. And then? And then when you get to the middle of the message, switch the alphabet over to diamonds and spades. Then you won't keep on repeating. Now, will you read what I've got written on this piece of paper? Jack of Diamonds, Q, three of clubs, F. Well, that doesn't seem to mean much. Oh, never mind the cards, Colonel. Just read the letters. Q, F, A, C, T, O, R, Y. Yes, sir. Q factory. Go on. Uh, oh, just a moment. What is that infernal noise? Johnson Burroughs. Don't bother oh. with that, sir. Just read the message, please. Oh. Q factory. 10 p.m., 15th. Today's the 15th of March, Colonel. Oh. All preparations made. Use dive bombers. I see. Uh, this message was left openly. So openly that nobody ever noticed it. Yes, the trick's been tried before. No contacts, no gatherings, no letters that might be intercepted. A whole spy ring could walk through that wax museum and read the message without being seen. You newspaper men trying to teach me my job? Oh, I'm sorry, sir, I only... No, no, go on. Well, don't you see? Three or four little boats with portable wireless sets go down the Thames estuary. When they're beyond pursuit, they send that message by radio. Somebody listens. And it's no secret in Fleet Street, sir, that Q Factory is out in the wilds of Glebeshire. Uh, it's no secret anywhere. And that we're making the Shaftesbury bomber out there. So tonight, unless we do something about it, they're coming over and bomb Q Factory to blazes. Uh, that's impossible. Why? Or can't you tell me? I can tell you this much. Yes, sir. Q Factory is so well hidden that even our own palace can't find it from the air. That's one objection to this message. Any other objection? Yes, this talk about dive bombers. Dive bombers in a night attack. What's the good of a dive bomber if he can't see his objective? Well, suppose somebody showed a light. He'd be shot dead as soon as he showed it. Every inch of country for a quarter of a mile around the factory. A quarter of a mile, Mr. Rogers, is patrolled day and night. Well, just the same. They're going to have a try at it, sir. How? I don't know how. Then if you'll excuse me, Mr. Rogers... Well, listen, Colonel Warner. Will you give me a pass to go down there to the factory? Certainly not. No one's permitted to go there except the workers. 
How is the place defended? There's a night fighter station nearby, and several batteries of four 3.7 guns. Then give me a pass to the fighter station or to the gun post. That's a legitimate newspaper request. Well, I, I might manage a password of the gun first here. Then you'll do it. Well, what on earth is that infernal row? It sounds like somebody locked up in a coat cupboard. Yes, as a matter of fact, Colonel, it is somebody locked up in a coat cupboard. A young lady, so-called. A young lady? Who locked her up? I did. And just what the devil do you mean, sir, locking up people in coat cupboards in the war office? Well, she's a bit excitable, Colonel. I thought... That uh, she'd better not see you. Well, thanks for the consideration. Uh, there's just one other favor I'd like to ask. As well? If she asks you for a pass, don't give it to her. Don't give it to her under any circumstances. Well, what's her name? Susie Dubois. <laughs> You're rather too late for that, young man. Uh, the public relations office granted her a pass two hours ago. What? Oh. A woman to an anti-aircraft battery? Uh, this is what we call a mixed battery. Women on the guns as well as men. She said it would make a good human interest story for the press. I, mm. I must say, I agree with her. Uh, one moment, Mr. Rogers, before you go. Yes, sir. That gun post is fully two miles from the factory. You can go there, but if you take one step further, you'll be shot on sight by our guards. I warn you. I'll be careful, Colonel. I'll be careful. Somewhere in the West Country, a yellow moon shines over bare trees. A white mist moving clings to the ground. Susie, are you sure we're on the right road? Oh, mon cher, they have taken away all the signposts in case there is an invasion. I know that. But I follow the map. The map cannot be wrong. We've been driving for hours. Must be... Yes, it is. Nearly half past nine. Half an hour to go. Trees, trees, and still more trees. Look. There's a break in the trees ahead. There will be open country in a minute. Yeah. That's funny. Look how deep the leaves are here on the road. But one thing I tell you, just between you and me and the bedposts... Gateposts, Susie. The term is between you and me and the gateposts. And speak English. I am speaking English very well, thank you. I do not need your help to be pure. All right, all right. Now, this man. Well, what about it? It say we should go through a lot of villages. Mitford, Archidine, and Saffroyville. I have not seen any villages. Did you say Mitford? We should. Susie, let me have a look at that map. Come on, come on, hand it over. But what is wrong? It is a perfectly good map. Yes, Susie. It's a fine map. It's an excellent map. Only it's a map of the wrong county. I have made a mistake. No? I don't even believe you can read. This is a map of Barsetshire. We should be somewhere in Glebeshire. Now, where in the devil are we? We're at the entrance to some kind of clearing with leaves. Oh. Oh, What was that? Somebody calling us. And if we're in Forbidden Area... I see him now. Where? He's behind us. He came out of a white cottage back there. It's a big, heavy man. With a mustache. Never mind the mustache. He's wearing some kind of a uniform and he's got a rifle. You think he plugged us? No. I think it is not unlikely. Get out those war office passes of ours. Wait. Good evening, my friends. Uh, good evening. Can you tell me... Oh, we don't mean any harm. Oh, 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 Can you tell me... What time it is? Oh, 
<laughs> what time it is? Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, uh, 28 and a half minutes past nine. Thank you. I will keep you covered while I set my watch. There. My next question is, would you like me to shoot you both? No. Listen, Mr. Uh, Mr. McAllister. Captain. Captain McAllister. That's All right. right. Oh, Captain, uh, this girl, uh, she's been reading the wrong map. You see, we don't even know where we are. You are in Hollywood Forest, my friend. Hollywood Forest? Is that good or bad? And you don't know what's just beyond the edge of this clearing? No. There's a big open space of a quarter of a mile. In the middle of that open space... Q Factory. We're right on top of it. Then you have heard of Q Factory, my friend. Captain McAllister, we're from the war office, and we've got passes to prove it. Let's see the passes. We were trying to find gun site number... Uh, I've forgotten the number, but it's here on that card. You've passed the gun site. Two miles back up the road. All right. Here are your passes. What are you going to do to us? Uh, I'm not in the regular army. You can thank your stars I'm not. I'm forestry preservation. Oh. You are not going to chuck us in the cooler, is it? <laughs> no. Now turn that car around, get back along this road as fast as you can. If they fire at you, as they probably will... Oh, I wish I am home. Pray no, more. I wish I am home. Well, then hope for the best. My watch had stopped and you did me a good turn. Well, hurry along. Hurry. Sight of heavy ACAC battery. Four three point seven guns against a moon growing clear white. White as the concrete emplacements, sealed against light where the crews, men and women, sitting, waiting, waiting, waiting. Well, sir, uh, glad to have you both here. But this idea of yours about dive bombers attacking a blacked-out factory in the uh, middle of a forest is uh, rather fantastic, don't you think? Well, I admit it doesn't make much sense, Captain Bronson, but I have a hunch that I'm right. Well, glad you and Miss Susie drove out. Don't see many strangers. Frightfully boring. Nice country, of course. Good air and everything, but dull. Dull as ditchwater. What's that? Only some of the lads and lasses inside like to uh, walk along the emplacement here. Oh, is that allowed? Oh, certainly, old boy. Why not? Bright moon tonight, isn't it? Yes, bomber's moon. We, uh, we nearly get shot on our way here. Quiet, Susie. We're not supposed to have been there. If I nearly get shot, I'm going to say I nearly get shot. It was a man which is called, uh, uh Mick Callister. Oh, old Mac. Uh, very decent sort, Mac. He's a, a tree doctor. A what? Tree doctor. Got to have wood, you know. But trees start to die. Mac goes round the edge of the clearing and smears him with stuff to keep a well. Uh, how did you come to meet him? Well, the fact is, uh, we nearly got as far as the factory tonight. Oh, then you were lucky to get back alive. There weren't any barrage balloons over the factory, I noticed. Uh, hardly, old boy. They wouldn't advertise, would they? With balloons in open country? And if the Germans did use dive bombers? Oh, they're not coming, old boy. Just make up your mind to that. I wonder if you'll say so at 10 o'clock. But it is 10 o'clock. It's, uh, well, it's just 10 now. Well, it can't be. 
We drove here like blazes. It was only half past nine then. Well, then your watch must be very slow, boy. No, I'm afraid you're wrong. I've never seen it quieter. Cold tonight, very dry for March. Look all around you. Moonlight, open country, not a sign of life in it. Quiet, peaceful, and silent as the great... What was that? Why, George, I think we've got some visitors. I think we're going to see some fun. Enemy planes approaching south, southwest. Action stations. Enemy planes approaching south, southwest. Now do you believe me? Better stand back, old boy. Operation crew's coming on. I said, now do you believe me? I want you to watch these girls work. They do everything, you know, except actually fire the guns. Now, 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 keep your hair on, old boy. Susie, he still can't see it. Oh, they'll only be going over. You think so? Oh, yes. We sometimes get a crack at them when they're making for Bristol. Standing by for action. Standing by. that noise a thousand times. But every time I hear it, I get sick. Mm. Well, they're flying ruddy low, you know. Just what I was thinking. Spotter! Spotter! Any identification? Yonkers, 88. Dive bombers. Yes, sir. There might be things popping, you know, can't tell. I'd like to get below. No, no, thanks. I don't like this, Bert, but I'll stay too. Range finder. Range finder. All target. Look here, you two. Those war office passes you gave me, uh, I'm not supposed to keep them. Now, I'd better give them back just in case. Predictor. Predictor. All target. Here we go, ladies and gents. Yes, Corporal. Open fire. Night fighters taking off. Open fire. Night fighters taking off. Open fire. Message understood. What is the matter with them? With who? Those harsh planes. They're still a good way off, but they don't come any closer. Hmm. Must be going over after all. They're circling. I think they're waiting for a signal. Anyhow, here are your war office passes. You, well, you seem to have got them all smeared with oil. Oil? That is all right, Monsieur. When we get them back from Captain McAllister, they have oil on them. I think maybe he dropped them on the leaves because there's oil on the tires of the car, too. Then I think how always in this we meet things that burn. At Madame Tussauds last night, they would not let me smoke a cigarette in case of fire. Fire? That's that fire. What's the matter with you, old boy? Why did that fella... Way out at the end of nowhere, want to know what time it was. Are you scatty? McAllister, you told me so yourself. He goes around the edges of the clearing and smears the trees with stuff to keep them well. Well, what about it? Suppose it was crude oil. Suppose between each tree he laid an invisible fuse of dead leaves soaked in oil. I, uh, I don't understand. In 30 seconds, a complete square of fire runs around the limits of the factory grounds. That draws the bombers in. Then as the flames blaze higher, they've got enough light to dive on their target. Fighters are letting loose. Brunson, I see it all now. Come on. We've got to get to that tree, Dr. McAllister. It's a matter of minutes. Oh, 
see. Is Branson following in the car behind us? Yes. He's following and men with rifles. Got to get to McAllister's cottage. This McAllister... I'll bet you ten to one. The real McAllister's either dead or tied up in that cottage. The fellow we saw was an imposter. Look out, Susie. Keep your head down. Those fighters. They will chew up every younger in the place. They have not got the chance of a snowshoe in heaven. No, Susie, not a snowshoe in heaven. You mean... Hi, a... Mom, you are English at a time like this. What I cannot understand... I don't see why he hasn't set his signal off. What is delaying him? Why don't he strike a match when the bombers come over? Because he's a good Nazi. A good Nazi? My watch was slow, don't you remember? And I gave him the wrong time. He had orders to strike his match at 10 o'clock, and he'll not do it until 10 o'clock if there are 500 planes instead of 20. Bert, I see him. Where? Far up the road. He's running. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. Think we can reach him before he gets to the clearing? No. Chance of a snowshoe in heaven. Signal Brunson to pass us. A long shot with a Bert, rifle might... Bert, one of the yokers is hit. Huh? He's right over us. That's not all. He's unloading his bombs. The whole stick's coming straight down in our direction. Keep your head down. sank too deeply before it exploded. We didn't catch the blast. Come on, Susie. McAllister was just ahead of us. Come on, let's get out. We can't drive any farther. This road is full of bomb craters. Wait a minute, Susie. There's McAllister. He... He is dead. Yes, Susie. Killed by a Nazi bomb. What are those two white cards? Oh. Hmm. They're all smeared with oil. They must have fallen out of McAllister's pocket just before he got hit. Let's see. Huh. What do you know? What are the cards, Bert? Two tickets for Madame Tussaud's waxworks. I'm afraid our friend's never going to get to use them. Uh-huh. Not the chance of us. No shoe in heaven. And so ends Menace in Wax. Tonight's story of Suspense. Columbia presents these stories of mystery and intrigue and dangerous adventure for your relaxation and enjoyment. Next Tuesday, there'll be another in this series. Same hour. 9.30 Eastern Wartime. William Spear, the producer. John Dietz, the director. Bernard Herman, the composer-conductor. John Dixon Carr, the author. Our collaborators on... Suspense. Here is a message of vital importance to every person who drives an automobile in America. 
There is wide misunderstanding about gasoline and rubber. And the government wants the following facts brought to everyone's attention. Actually, there is no scarcity of gasoline except in some parts of the East. But nowhere in the country is there enough rubber for military and civilian use. Starting two weeks from today, December 1st, mileage rationing goes into effect. This means that no car owner anywhere in the United States will be able to buy gasoline without a mileage rationing book. The purpose is to conserve the rubber we have by eliminating all unnecessary driving. When we think of the tremendous distances our mechanized army is traveling in North Africa and the long road to victory that still lies ahead, this extra effort on our part is slight indeed. Remember, everybody is going to have mileage rationing, so why not be prepared? The best way each of us can save rubber is by sharing our car with others. Let one car do the work for two or three. So why not arrange with the neighbors tonight and start sharing the car tomorrow? It's the one real important contribution that every automobile driver can make. Don't be a lone rider. Share your car and do your share for victory. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Huh. I just learned something. I knew that there was gasoline rationing during World War II, although I'm not old enough to remember it. In fact, I was born just after World War II in 1946. But there were other people in my family old enough to remember it. So I had heard about all the rationing that went on, including gasoline. I, I hadn't realized until just now that they rationed gasoline because of a shortage of rubber. Didn't know that. See, you can learn something by listening to these old programs. You're not going to learn how to do a fake French accent, at least not from this program. <laughs> Did you notice how often she just completely dropped her accent? Anyway, we're coming up on our next show now, which is an X-1 from April 22nd of 1955, and the moon still be as bright. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents X minus one Tonight, the Ray Bradbury story entitled, And the Moon Be Still as Bright. The first three expeditions for Mars left Earth in a mushroom of flame, arced through the atmosphere, and finally dwindled to tiny specks in the big eye of the Mount Palomar telescope. Men were lost to sight forever. The prearranged landing signals flashed back to Earth, and then the radios went dead. 
One after the other, ships had disappeared and were never heard from again. But still, the rockets came. The fourth expedition emerged from the silent gulfs of space, angled down toward the floating red disk of Mars, down into an orbit as the order came to land. The last blast of the bow jets broke red against the blue desert sands, and the ship slid to a halt at the edge of a vast city that reflected the icy glare of the moonlight. For a while, all was still. All right, Park Hill. Open the airlock. Hi, sir. Fresh air. Hey, it's cold out here. Who cares? We got here. I thought I'd never hit solid ground again. Hey, how about a fire, Captain Wildey? It's freezing. Later. We have work to do. Oh, smell that air. Well, you could get drunk on it. Say, there's an idea. Why don't we break out a bottle and celebrate? Biggs, there will be no drinking done till we're secured. But we're landed, Captain. Three other expeditions landed and disappeared within 24 hours. Now, we're not relaxing security till we find out what happened to them. What do you mean? Maybe Martians? Sender, you're an archaeologist. How old would you say they are? I can't tell till I study them more closely. It's a kind of engineering we couldn't duplicate on Earth. Well, I'm not interested in the architecture now. I want to make sure there's nothing there that might be dangerous. Mr. Hathaway. Yes, sir? I want you and Spender to take a reconnaissance party into the city and find out what's there. We'll set up camp here. No man is to go more than 50 feet from this rocket. And there'll be no celebration till Hathaway and his party report back. In the sea bottoms, the wind stirred along faint vapors. And from the mountains, great stone visages looked upon the silvery rocket and the small fire. The sky was black overhead as the two racing moons threw knife-edged double shadows on the desert. All right, come and get it. Ciao. Hey, what do you got there, Jackie? Sawdust smothered in cold chicken fat. Good. I thought it was something I couldn't eat. <laughs> hey, Captain. Mr. Hathaway's back. Oh, Captain. Captain Wilder. Oh, yes, over here, Mr. Hathaway. Well, most of the city's dead. Spender says it's been dead a good many thousand years, but we found one part about a mile over what toward about the... it? People were living in it last week, sir. People? Martians. Where are they now? Dead. We found bodies, thousands of bodies. They hadn't been dead more than ten days. One of the died. You won't believe it. What killed them? Chicken pox. Chicken pox? Yes. Where could they get chicken pox? From Earth. Oh, then the other rockets did get through. Yes. I don't know what the Martians did to them, but I sure know what they did to the Martians. They gave them chicken pox and wiped them out. They just didn't have any resistance to an Earth disease. Now think of it, Captain. A race builds itself for a million years, refines itself, does everything it can to give itself respect and beauty, and then it dies. Of what? It's like saying the Greeks died of mumps or the proud Roman Empire collapsed because of athlete's foot. We didn't even give them a decent excuse for dying. We just gave them chicken pox. Spender, get hold of yourself. You didn't see those bodies, Captain. Yes, I know. It must have been a shock. Oh, you need a rest, a little relaxation. The Martians are dead. There's nothing you can do about that now. Hey, you hear that? The Martians are all dead. Come on, let's break out a bottle and hoop it up. How about a case, eh? Good Lord. They have to do that now? Isn't there time later to throw old beer cans into the canals? Bender, you're an idealist. They're not. 
All they know now is that they're safe. Little shouting won't hurt. You think too much. I was safe on Mars. The first Earth men on Mars. We're going to celebrate. <laughs> Twenty bottles were opened and drunk. The voices got louder. The earth laughs and shouts echoing across the empty Martian sands. Spender listened to the wind over his ears, cool and whispering. He felt the land getting cooler. The stars drew closer, very near. The air smelled clean and new. He looked at the cool ice of the white Martian buildings over there on the empty sea lands. <laughs> Hey, what do we do with these empty bottles? Save them, stupid. There's a two cents deposit. Ah! <laughs> Throw them away. Hey, wait, wait. How about that building? Two to one on a buck, I can heave one right through that window. You're right. All right, here goes. Hey! Hey! Double it up on the next shot. Put that bottle down, Biggs. Who's there, Mr. Spender? Stop smashing those windows. What's the difference? The planet's ours now. I guess I can do anything with it I want. Drop that bottle or I'll knock your teeth out. Yeah? Hey, just watch me. I warned you. Big. Hey, what are you doing? Come on, come on. What's going on here? Spender! Spender! I hit him. He's crazy, Captain. He just walked up and slugged me. All right, Biggs. Spender, you come with me. Now, suppose you explain. What was the idea? The noise, the drunken brawl. And the men are tired. This has been a long trip. And you have a different way of seeing things. Oh, I'm seeing things all right. I'm seeing how we'll ruin Mars. We'll rip it up and rip the skin off the way we've already ruined Earth. Is that why you hit Biggs? Yes. I couldn't stand the idea of them watching us make fools of ourselves. Them? The Martians. They're dead. They're all dead. But they know we're here. Doesn't an old thing always know when a new thing comes? We've come a long way to smash their windows and spit in their wine. Well, maybe you're right. But I'm still going to fine you $50 for that fight. Now, come on, Spender. Suck in your chin. We'll go back there and play happy. Now they moved out into the moonlight across the desert. They made their way into the dreaming, dead city. The light of the racing twin moons glinted on the barrel of a pistol, the long blade of a machete, the round, gurgling shape of a raised bottle. The wind blew in from the dead sea bottom and brushed through the silvery wire filigree of the towers. Strange music drifted down to the double shadowed streets, a thin, haunted music that played as it had played through the uncounted years of time. Nobody moved. The moons held and froze them. The wind beat slowly around them. Hey! Hey, you people in the city! Pigs! I just want to make a little noise. What kind of a celebration is this, anyway? Come on. They built this city thousands of years ago. And now where are they? 
How did they die? Who cares? They're dead. That's good enough for me. Lord Byron. What? Lord Byron, a 19th century poet. He wrote a poem that fits this city. Might have been written by the last Martian poet. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night. Though the heart be still as loving, though the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul outwears its breast. And the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself must rest. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon. Yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. Without a word, the earthmen stood in the center of the city. It was a clear night. There was not a sound except the music of the wind. At their feet lay a tile court worked into the shapes of ancient animals and images. They stood there, silvered by the double moons beneath the crystal towers of Mars. And then Biggs was sick, and the sour stench of liquor filled the cool air. The men of Earth had come to Mars. And Spender turned and walked away into the city, alone in the moonlight, never once stopping to look back. It was a morning that might have been a Monday, or a Tuesday, or any day on Mars. Biggs was on the canal rim, his feet hung down in the cool water, soaking, while he took the sun in his face. Hey, what are you doing back here, Biggs? Didn't you go out with the search party? Yeah. I come back. I got a blister. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Look. Look, Cherokee. See that? Anyway, I had enough searching. Four days hunting for that screwball spender. Didn't find him yet, huh? Oh, good riddance. Oh, my feet. I'm going to soak them in the canal. If I was wilder, I wouldn't worry about that nut spender. Let him go. He's a crackpot anyway. He's a little foggy upstairs, I guess. Hey, why don't you take your feet out of that canal, Biggs? I got to make coffee out of that water. Coffee? You call that stuff coffee? I had a motorcycle once that dripped grease that tasted better hey, than... Hey, wait a minute, Biggs. Hey, hey, look over there. Where? By that bush. There's someone there. Hey, it's him. Hey. Hey, Spender. Spender? He's coming over. Why don't he stay lost, that crazy jerk? Hi, Spender. Long time no see. Hello, Cherokee. I have been exploring some ruins. Oh, you and them ruins. You're like a dog in a boneyard. What's the matter? Why don't you say something? Where you been? Up in the hills. What would you say if I told you I found a Martian? Oh, yeah? Where? Never mind. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel if you were a Martian and people came to your land and started to tear it up? I know how I'd feel. I've, I've got Cherokee blood in me. My grandfather told me a lot of things about the way they kicked the Indians around in the Oklahoma Territory. If there's any Martian around, I'm all for him. How about you, Biggs? They're dead. They're all dead. It's a good thing, too. Well, I found a Martian. Up in a dead town in the hills. I've been reading their books, and they're easy to understand. And I've learned their language. And then I found this Martian. And I brought him here, now. I don't see no Martian. I'm the last Martian... What did you say? Biggs, I'm going to kill you. Oh, cut it out. What kind of a lousy joke is that? Now, don't. Put that gun away. You're kidding, huh? 
Spender, you... He's dead. You killed him. You can come with me, Cherokee. You're an Indian. You know how the Martians would feel. You can be with me in this. You killed him. You just... You just killed him. He deserved it. You're crazy. Maybe I am. But you can come with me. Come with you? For what? Go on, get out of here, you crazy murderer. Of all of them, I thought you'd understand. I thought you'd remember what happened to your own people. You get out of here, you crazy murdering... Don't reach for that gun. Spender. Spender. Hathaway, break out the arms locker. Issue pistols, rifles, and grenades. Yes, sir. And you'd better get the Bible out of the navigation chest. We have to bury these two. Now, Park, you start digging a grave, hmm? How about Spender? We'll have to go up in the hills and find him. Just let me at him with my bare hands, a crazy murdering louse. That's enough, Park. Your man is sick. He must be... Sick my eye, he's... That's a... enough. Now grab a shovel and start digging. Spender saw the thin dust rising in the valley, and he knew the pursuit was beginning. The sun burned farther up the sky, and the blue sand drifted lazily across the sea bottom below. He sat beside a quiet pool 10,000 years old and held a silver book. Through the house played the strange wind music of ancient Mars. And he heard voices whisper in his mind. I hear you. I've always heard you. Even down there on Earth. No, I won't run. What's the use? Live, what for? To see them tear down your temples and put up hot dog stands? They see me now. They know I'm up here. There's Wilder now. I've got him right in my sights. Funny, he hasn't ordered them to use grenades. They could lob one right up here and blow me to bits. Maybe the captain thinks I'm too nice to be blown to bits. He wants my death to be clean. Just one bullet hole in me, nothing messy. And why? Because he understands me. The only one in the crew who ever did. Well, at least I can do the same for him. Just one bullet in his head, a nice clean death. All I have to do is pull the trigger and then... It's no use. I can't do it to him. Spender! Spender! Can you hear me, Spender? I hear you, Captain. What do you want? Talk! Truth! All right. Come on up. Leave your gun down there. Keep your hands up. That's quite a climb. You wouldn't mind if I sit down? Hmm. How long do you think you can hold out? Until you're all dead. Now, why didn't you kill all of us this morning when you had the chance? You could have. I know. I got sick. After I started killing people, I realized they were just fools and I shouldn't be killing them, but it was too late. So I came up here where I could get angry again. Why did you do it? When I was a kid, my folks took me to visit Mexico City. 
I'll always remember the way my father acted loud and big. And my mother didn't like the people because she thought they didn't wash enough. I can, I can see my mother and my father coming to Mars and acting the same way. Anything that's strange is no good to us. We aren't fit to take over this planet. But to kill two men. How would you feel if a Martian spit on the White House floor? You know, you haven't acted very civilized yourself. Today. I'll kill you all off, either. That'll delay the next rocket five years, and then I'll kill them, too. And if I'm lucky, I'll live to be 60. And I'll meet every expedition that lands on Mars. Oh, I'll be very friendly. I'll explain our rocket blew up one day. And then I'll kill them off. I'll save Mars for half a century. And by then, maybe the Earth people will give up. And yet you're outnumbered. We already have you surrounded. In an hour, you will be dead. I found an underground passage that'll take me back in the hills, Wilder. I'll go back there. And then I'll pick you off one by one. We'll see. Well, it's a nice town you've got here, Spender. It's beautiful. I'd like to live here. You can. Join me. You're not like them. Why go back to them, Captain? I'll, I'll show you what a good life these people had. I'll be... Oh. No, there's too much earth blood in me. I may even agree with you about all this, but that does not change what I must do. You won't stay? No. This is your last chance, Spender. Look, you're sick. Now, come along with me quietly. No. no. One, one last thing. If you win, do me a favor. Try to see that they don't tear this planet apart. Right. And if it helps, just think of me as a very crazy fellow who went berserk one summer day. Be easier on you that way. Now, I'll think that over. So long, Spender. Bye, Captain. Good luck. The men spread out again, walking and then running on the hot hillside places where there would be sudden cool grottoes that smelled of moss and sudden open blasting places that smelled of sun or stone. The men ran and ducked and ran and squatted in the shadows. Captain Wilder hugged the rock warmed by the sun. He gasped, for the air was thin and not meant for running. Spender lay at the top of the hill, and a gap in the rocks showed the white of his shirt against the shadows. Wilder looked at the towers of the little clean Martian village, like sharply carved chess pieces lying in the afternoon. He saw the rocks, and the interval between where Spender's chest was revealed. Go on, Spender. Get out. You only got a few seconds to escape. Go on. Get out of the caves. Come back later. You go now. I've got to win this. I've got to think that I'm right. Pull this trigger. Go now. Get out. I'll get him. A slug in the head. I'll blow his bloody brain. No, Parkhill. Put down that gun. I'll do this myself. Spender. Why didn't you get out? Why? Why? Why?
They buried him in that ancient valley town where the music of the wind played on through the days and the nights. They laid him in an ancient silver sarcophagus with waxes and wines which were 10,000 years old. His hands folded on his chest. The last they saw of him was his peaceful face in the cold silver light of the racing twin moons. The captain found the poem in Spender's pocket. And he read it before he shut the marble door. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night. Though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright. Though the night was made for loving and the day returns too soon. Yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. The next afternoon, Parkhill did some target practice in one of the dead cities, shooting out the crystal windows and blowing the tops off the fragile towers. Captain Wilder caught Parkhill and nearly knocked his teeth out. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you the Ray Bradbury story and The Moon Be Still as Bright, adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured in the cast were John Larkin, Clark Gordon, Dick Hamilton, Nelson Almstead, Lawrence Kerr, and Stan Early. Your narrator was Norman Rose. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. X-1. That seems to me to have been one of the better science fiction stories that we played here. X-1 was pretty good most of the time, but that was unusually good. Ernest Conoy did a really good job adapting the Ray Bradbury story. Of course, Ray Bradbury, Ray Bradbury can write. Always has been able to. Yeah, I do realize that Mars is nothing like that. Nothing like Ray Bradbury said it was. Even when the short story was written, people already knew by June of 1948 when this story was originally published in Amazing Science Fiction. Or was it Astounding Science Fiction? No, it was Thrilling Wonder Stories. That Mars wasn't anything like that. They were pretty sure there were no canals and that the air was too thin. I mean, it was still possible. There were people who held firmly, almost grimly, to the ideas that Mars might be like that, that maybe the Mars of Edgar Burroughs could even exist. Maybe there could be green Martians, red Martians, with their egg-laying princesses. But we already had a pretty good idea that it wasn't so. Does it really matter? Science fiction isn't really an attempt to prophesy the technical future. Although, you know, that is part of it. A lot of science fiction does look at technical achievements and 
ask itself, what happens if this goes on? But mostly, even then, the real question, the thing that the writers are really interested in is, what happens to human beings, to the individual, to the society, if this goes on? So science fiction really is quite different than fantasy, in that science fiction at least tries to be plausible in light of what's known at the time the science fiction is written. Really, often the science is just an excuse to tell a story. Fantasy, on the other hand, makes really no effort to be credible. Everybody knows there are no vampires, no werewolves, no banshees, no leprechauns, no elves. Well, some people do believe in them, but some people will believe in anything. I mean, yeah, it's true. There are some human conditions that may be the starting point for these stories. There are people who have serious allergies to sunshine and stay out of it and only go out at night. There are some people who are ridiculously hairsuit. There's a Mexican there's that family in Mexico. Their entire bodies are thickly covered with hair, including their faces. Maybe it's conditions like this that are the genesis of the werewolf stories. I don't know. In the Caribbean, there really are apparently some drugs that can be given to people that feign death. The people have then been dug up and kept in a drug-induced stupor for years and used as slaves. Supposedly, this is the genesis of the story of zombies, but we know there are no such things as real zombies. Ah, I hope I locked that door. Oh man, where's Rabbit Shotgun? another fine mess I have to clean up. Ah, uh, what did I do with that mop? Oh, yeah, yeah. Next show. Next show is from The Mysterious Traveler, and it's called Murder Ghost 3. It originally aired on March 31st of 1945. Mysterious Traveler. This is the Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back. Get a good grip on your nerves and be comfortable. Keep you dead. Where are we going? Are we going to join Walter Cabot as he takes a little excursion into crime? I call the story Murder So Sweet. Late one foggy evening several years ago, as I was walking along one of the main streets of a large city, I was stopped by an elderly man who seemed unusually agitated. 
Pardon me, sir. May I speak with you for a moment? Of course. Uh, here, perhaps this will help. Oh, please, please. Listen, money, I want. I just want someone to listen to me. No one is interested in seeing justice done. No one. Well, I should be glad to hear what you have to say. You, you will listen to my story? Yes. I want to confess something that's on my conscience. I've confessed a hundred times, oh, a thousand times. Yet no one will believe me. You must help me make them believe. It all began that day in my office. When Martin, my son, came in to see me. Hello, Dad. All right. Oh, Martin. I'm glad you're here. I want to talk to you. Oh? Sounds as if I've done something you don't approve of, Dad. Did you read the gossip column in this morning's Daily Ledger? Oh. Oh, that. Why haven't you told me about this woman, Diana Winters? Well, I'm sorry, Dad. I, I just didn't think it was important. You've anymore. always told me about your other friends. Are you ashamed of Diana Winters? No, of course not. Why should I be? Martin, you know as well as I do that her reputation is, well, spectacular, to put it kindly. The stories about her are all lies. That's I'm not taken in by gossip, Martin. I happen to know that this Winters woman is just plain no good. Dad, I won't have you talking about her like that. Martin, you don't love this woman, do you? Yes. Yes, I do. Martin, you must give her up. Dad, I'm old enough to make my own decision. Can't you see what she's doing to you? She's just a predatory gold Dad, digging. stop talking about her like that. All right, son. That's the way you feel about it. You'd better go. All right. Goodbye, Dad. Oh, Martin. Oh, yes, son. Oh, perhaps that's... Come in. Oh, it's you, Norman. Hello, Walter. What's the matter with Martin? Just passed him in the reception room. He appeared to be quite upset. We've had a quarrel. Oh? It's the first one we've ever had. Was it about that bit of gossip in this morning's Daily Ledger? Yes. Imagine Martin's name linked with that of a... Martin will be all right. He'll get over no, it. No, no, he won't. I can't stand by and watch him ruin his life. I've got to do something. I wouldn't if I were you, Walter. You've got to let Martin make his own decisions. He's no child. Oh, you're a fool, Norman. You expect me to watch the only person who means anything to me get hurt? No, I suppose you won't. What are you going to do? I'm going to have a talk with that woman, Diana Winters. <laughs> Walter Cabot. Oh. Walter Cabot. I see. And I have a word in private with you. Really, I have guests. Yes, it will only take a few minutes. Hello. All right. Come this way. Thank you. Now, I'll bother if we're here. I hardly know how to begin, Miss Winter. And let's be frank, Mr. Cabot, and save ourselves time. You've come here to ask me to give up your son, haven't you? Yes. Well, then you may as well know that you're wasting your time. I love Martin, and I won't give him up. I know better. Since we're doing so frank, I'll get to the point. How much do you want to let Martin go? Are you insinuating what oh, I Oh, now, come, thought? Miss Winters. There's no need to put on an act for me. <laughs> How much? Really, Mr. Cabot. You know, you're far more interesting than your son. Shall we say, um, uh, hundred thousand? Hundred thousand? Yes, a hundred thousand. If you love your son, surely he's worth it. I haven't anything like that amount of money. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you believe for a moment that Martin has any money? Oh, no, no. But he will inherit a quarter of a million dollars from his mother's estate in a few months. Oh, so you know about that? Mm. Yes, of course. What other reason would you have for leading Martin on? None that I can think of. What if I were to tell Martin of our conversation? He wouldn't believe you. You can't do this to him. I'm afraid I must be getting back to my guess, Mr. Cabot. Now, wait, please. Please listen to me. Martin is everything I have. 
If I had the money, I'd gladly give it to you. But I haven't it. Oh, Charlie. Women like you don't deserve to lose. Please leave at one. If you don't give Martin up, I'll kill you. Oh, get out of here. I'll have my friend throw you out. I'm warning you. Stay away from Martin or I'll kill you. trying to bribe her to give me up. Is that true? Yes, Martin, it is. You did that after I told you I love her? Yes, because I know she doesn't love you. And why weren't you able to buy her off? Because she wanted a hundred thousand dollars. You're lying. She never asked you for one cent. Have you ever known me to lie to you? Dad, I told you I was fully capable of making my own decisions my minutes. An hour ago, I asked Diana to marry me. And she accepted. You're, you're going to marry her? Yes. Just a few days. So you're going to ruin your life for a cheap gold digger? Dad! told you not to speak about it like that. You feel differently. Diane and I will be happy to see you. Get out. Get out, do you hear? All right, all right, I will. After all these years and everything I've tried to do for him. Well, Walter, were you able to do anything? No. I'm not going to let him ruin his life, do you hear? But what can you do? If there's no bride, there can be no wedding. If there's no bride... Walter, you don't mean you... Why not? Can you think of anyone who deserves less to live? You're mad. For years, my hobby has been the study of famous murders. I've studied hundreds of cases closely. In each case, I was able to pick out the flaw that prevented it from being a perfect crime. And then one day, I began to work out a perfect crime for myself. Walter, what are you saying? I was merely doing it for fun, just as some men do crossword puzzles. Norman, I did hit upon a way to commit a perfect murder... Now I have a motive. You must stop talking like that, Walter. There's no such thing as a perfect crime. You're wrong, Norman. And I'm going to prove it. Walter, can't you see that what you want to do is insane? It's far better that Martin marry that woman than for you to become a murderer. No. If Martin were to marry that woman, it would be the end for both of us. At least this way I can be certain that his life won't be ruined. And that's all that counts. As for the police, Norman, they'll never catch me. Never. <laughs> Pardon me, sir. Can, can you tell me the name of this horrible place? There ain't nothing horrible about Valley Springs, stranger. 1,242 people think it's mighty fine village. I've never seen an uglier place. What do people live here for? Oh, I'm drinking, haven't you? Well, I'm warning you, mister. You'd better stop insulting this village or I'll run you in. I'm the village council. Oh, so you're going to get rough. I will take this. Hey, yes, uh, I'll learn you to push it all around. You're under arrest for drunkenness and disorderly conduct. You and me are going to see George Hutchins, Justice to see. <laughs> In our village, half a dozen times, Your Honor, he attempted to attack me. And that's when I arrested him. Hmm. Did right, Pete. What you got to say to the charges, Mr. What's your name? I'm not gonna tell it. He sure had a job for you, Your Honor. Hmm. Charge is drunkenness, disorderly conduct. How do you plead, stranger? Gilly, Your Honor, Gilly. Yeah. Well, stranger, seeing you admit you, Gilly, I'll only find you $20. Well, if I don't want to pay. Well, I'm afraid in that case you just spend the night in cash. I won't be intimidated. I'm not going to pay my time and you can't make me. Oh, dear. Pete, 
Looks like you'll have to lock them up tonight. Take them away. Well, stranger, now you can see what the inside of our jail looks like. Huh. It uh, still ain't too late to pay your time. Uh, don't you want to pay it and sleep in a nice soft bed? No, I, I like it here. Which of the two cells is mine? Well, uh, you take the one on the right. I'll sleep in the other. I got to guard you. Go ahead, get in so I can lock the door. Just as you say, constable. <laughs> now, I don't want to hear anything out here till morning. I tried to reason with you, but you wouldn't listen. You should have. No, you can't kill me. Stay away from me. Stay away from me, you hear? It's no use trying the door. I locked it when I came in, and I have the key. Please. Please listen to me. I'll do anything you want. I'll give Martin up. I'll go away. You had your chance. You didn't do it. Don't touch me. wristwatch back to 12 and stop it. The exact time I was being arrested in Valley Spring and my son is free. Free! Hey, hey, Constable! Constable, wake up, wake up! I want another drink. Wake up, will you? Oh, uh, what's all this noise about? Oh, 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 my back. 
Hey, what's the idea waking me up? Why, it ain't even down yet. Hey, well, another drink and I'll take it straight. Oh, go sleep, you hear? It, it's four o'clock and you ain't getting out of here until late in the morning. Yet four hours yet. And I don't want to hear any more out of you. Oh. oh, oh. Just see, say, Constable, anything to oblige a gentleman. Four hours more. <laughs> Constable spoke to me at four o'clock in the morning in my cell, and that I was very drunk. Oh, the perfect crime. Everything's worked out exactly as I planned. The police will never be able to prove a thing. In a few months, the murder will just be a thing of the past. And Martin and I will once more be as close as ever. office this morning. Well, so I finally caught up with you. <laughs> My partner told me a few minutes ago that you've been looking for me. Hey, listen What's on you? Me? That's putting it mildly. There's been a five-state alarm out for you for the past 24 hours. What? Where have you been the last few days? Well, I've been vacationing at a small resort a hundred miles upstate. Kind of sudden vacation, wasn't it? Huh? Even your partner didn't know where you were. Well, I went there on the spur of the moment. Oh, you did, huh? Yes. And where were you on the night of the 22nd? The night Diana Winters was murdered. Say, I read about that, Kelly. That's rather than not stalling. Where were you? <laughs> Frankly, Kelly, I don't recall where I was that night. I, I'm afraid I, I was a little drunk. You're going to have to do better than that for the DA. Oh? Well, I'm afraid I won't be able to. I, I really can't remember where I was that night. Abbott, I think you're going to wind up in a place you're not going to like. In the chair. Get your hat. We're going down to headquarters. Oh, that sounds serious. Well, look, do you mind if I speak to my partner and explain matters to him? That won't be necessary. He'll be able to read all about it in the papers. And believe me, it isn't going to make pleasant reading. <laughs> witnesses have testified that the defendant, Walter Cabot, threatened to kill Diana Winters. And how has the defense replied to the charges of the state? It hasn't. Can we accept the flimsy story of the defendant? That he was drunk the night of the murder and hasn't any recollection of his actions? Perhaps Walter Cabot doesn't know where he was that night, but I do. He was in the apartment of Diana Winters, where he cold-bloodedly strangled her, as he vowed to do, before a dozen witnesses. There is only one verdict you can render. Guilty of murder in the first degree. The state rests, Your Honor. Since you've insisted on defending yourself, are you ready for the defense's summation, Mr. Cabot? Your Honor, I've often observed the strange twist of fate by which a man is saved or condemned. My inability to recall any of my actions on the night of the 22nd left me without a defense. Yesterday, frankly, I regarded my case as being hopeless. Today, however, through a twist of fate, I have received a new lease on life. I'm now prepared to prove my whereabouts on the night in question. I should like to call upon a witness for the defense. You have the court's permission. Thank you, Your Honor. I wish to call Peter Wilk to the stand. Peter Wilk to the stand. 
Mr. Ryan. Mr. Ryan, hand, please. You tell me swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. State your name and occupation, please. I'm Peter Wilk. I'm constable for the village of Valley Springs. Mr. Wilk, will you tell the jury exactly what you told me this morning? Well, uh, yesterday, uh, George Hutchins, uh, he's our justice of the peace, and myself were looking at a city newspaper. And in it, we see a picture of a man, uh, Mr. Cabot, uh, right on the front page. It says he's being tried for a murder committed on the night of January 22nd. Well, George and me recognizes him right away as the fellow we locked up in our jail that night on a drunken and disorderly charge. Forgive me for being run away when you needed me. Forgive you? There's nothing to forgive, son. Dad, I I know now how right you were about that. Oh, you don't know how happy it makes me to hear you say that, son. I've been through a great deal lately. But it doesn't matter now that I have you back. Dad, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I promise you I'll, I'll never let you down again. some time since I've seen you. Oh, yes, yes. Last time you were here, you put this cuffs on me for the Winters murder. Well, mistakes will happen. Uh, anything on your mind, Kelly? No, nothing special. Just friendly call. Oh. Well, thanks for dropping in, Kelly. Oh, uh, by the way, have you seen the latest edition? Why, no. Anything of interest happen? Yeah, you might find it interesting. It could mean a client for you. Oh, really? What's happened? Well, here's the late paper. Read it for yourself. Oh, thanks. You suspect fell for Winter's murder. Oh, no. Well, it can't be. Why not? If you didn't kill Diana Winter, someone did. And we've got that someone down at headquarters. But you must be mistaken. What evidence have you got? Evidence? Yes. Oh, well, we can prove the guy we've got was at Diana Winter's apartment that night. What's that? But he was seen leaving just after midnight, after a whale of a quarrel with a Quarrel? What about? Oh, you should think. We both know what Diana was, two-timing gold digger. Yes, of course. She had plenty of other boyfriends when your son. Only none of them knew about the others. But yes, that night, the guy who killed her found out a few things about her and bumped her off. No. I don't believe it. I told you he left right after midnight, didn't I? That's right. Well, her watch was found on the floor where she dropped it during that fatal struggle. Stopped. Busted 12. And that watch is going to hang the guys. <laughs> we may have been wrong in your case, but this time we have the right man and we'll make it stick. Even though the evidence is circumstantial. Well, uh, I'd better be running along. Good night. And I take the paper. You might want to read the whole story. New suspect held for Winter's murder. 
District Attorney uncovered apparently conclusive evidence of guilt. I can't be. I had planned perfectly so that no one, no one could be held for it. There's no such thing as a perfect crime, Walter. Huh? The murderer always overlooks something. No such thing as the perfect crime. Murderer always overlooks something. Norman said that. But I knew better. And now an innocent man has been arrested for my crime. Whoever he is, he's innocent. I must save him. Yes. I can't let him die. <laughs> Gentlemen of the jury, you have reached a verdict. You have found the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. Silence in the courtroom. No, 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 it can't be. You're wrong. Silence in the courtroom. I'll have it cleared. Mr. Cabot, you'll kindly refrain from such outbursts. But, Your Honor, I protest. The evidence submitted by the state was purely circumstantial. It was no real. May I remind Mr. Cabot that this case may be appealed. Our attorney is quite uncalled for. But the prisoner is innocent, Your Honor. You haven't any right to... Another such outburst, Mr. Cabot, and I'll hold you for contempt of court. Your Honor, the defendant was convicted on purely circumstantial evidence. But I have positive proof of his innocence. Why did you wait until after the jury rendered a verdict to make this statement? I hoped, Your Honor, that the defendant would be acquitted and I wouldn't have to reveal my proof of his innocence, but I would like to do so now. Well, this is highly irregular, Mr. Cabot. But since the jury has already rendered its verdict and cannot be influenced, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. I know for a certainty that the defendant is not guilty of the murder of Diana Withers. For it was I who committed the crime. Mr. Cabot, you say you confessed the murder of Diana Withers? Yes, Your Honor. I and I alone am responsible for her death. You must believe me. Mr. Cabot... Only three months ago, you were acquitted of the murder of Diana Winters. You well know that a man may be tried only once for a crime. This confession now can do you no harm. The court sees your confession as being motivated only by your desire to see the defendant go free. No, no, Your Honor, that isn't true. I did murder Diana Winters. Then I broke her watch, and I set it back to 12 o'clock. You must believe me, you must. Bailiff. Have Mr. Cabot escorted from this courtroom. Prisoner will remain in his cell. No, 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 wait, Your Honor. Listen to me. He isn't guilty. I am. I do Stay in court. I've confessed a thousand times, and no one will believe me. No one. But you, sir, you will help me, won't you? We can't let an innocent man die for a murder I committed. No, of course not. But well, I hardly see how every I can... minute that passes brings him closer to the end. We must save him. We must. If you only hello, Abbott. Help... Oh, Kelly, I was just telling this gentleman here my story. We can't let an innocent man go to the electric chair. Kelly, you're a smart man. You believe I murdered Diana Winters, don't you? Yes, I do. You do? Then, then you'll help me save him? People wouldn't believe me any more than they do you. But they would, Kelly, they would. Why should they believe your story? You can't be tried again for the murder of Diana Winters. And what man in your position wouldn't confess to save his own son? But he's innocent, Kelly. Martin, my son is innocent. He was convicted only because he was near her apartment that night. And now there's so little time to do anything. The execution is set for midnight, and it's all the... It's twelve. Already. No. No. I'm sorry, Cabot. 
my son. My just heard chapter 67, the final chapter of this series of The Mysterious Traveler, Tales of the Strange and Terrifying. In tonight's story, Murder Goes Free, Ed Latimer played Walter Cabot, Tony Barrett played Martin, and Irene Winston played Diana. The Mysterious Traveler is written by Bob Arthur and David Cogan, and original music is played by Henry Silverne. The entire production is under the direction of Jock McGregor. <laughs> Traveler is presented from our New York studios. This concludes the present series of The Mysterious Traveler. Next Saturday evening at 9.30 Eastern Wartime over most of these stations, Mutual will present a new program, radio's first nationwide audience participation mystery series. It's called Calling All Detectives. We invite you to be with us for Calling All Detectives next Saturday night at 9.30 Eastern Wartime. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. If you open up the door, we 
That was a song by Jonathan Colton called Re Your Brains. And that's another show. Good night.